Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 135 unread books on my shelf. With me is my friend Toby. Hello. My brother Andrew. Hello there. And my husband Dylan is our sound recordist. Hello there. Oh, somebody became British after reading some Harry Potter. Mm. Um, Dylan, you were tasked with reading Chapter 1 of Harry Potter Book 7, which for some reason you have not read Book 7, though you've read Books 1 through 6. Did you do the task? And wait, I want to say, I want to have an official lead-in. Yes. And now it's time for Dylan's Cupboard Under the Stairs. Oh, yeah. Unlock the door, let the Dylan out. So anyway, I read the first chapter. Uh, opens with a bang, but Snape is with a guy named Yaxley, who I do not know. Okay. Uh, okay. Talking to Voldemort, giving a nice little recap of Please it. Please don't use his name. Yeah. Uh, Voldemort's being a little self-pitying throughout the whole thing. But yeah. for the first chapter... And the Lucius Malfoy relationship with Voldemort, uh, I guess he is staying too long as a house guest, and Lucius Malfoy feels a little bit bad about it, but he doesn't bring anything up because there's a spinning woman named... Dylan's named... reaching for the book, which is too far away for him to get Dylan, his you headphones. read one chapter. No, you, Dylan, you're supposed to remember this stuff. The Muggle Studies professor, don't know her name. Anywho, Muggle teacher, hovering around the room, uh... It being a weird centerpiece for this whole Death Eaters board meeting. Okay. Hmm. And yeah, they say that Harry's going to be killed now, I guess. Something's changing. Soon. I feel like some concern in your voice would not be misplaced. This well, is the hero of the As a house books. Slytherin, I'm pretty sure. You're a Hufflepuff. <laughs> yeah. And through. Yeah. Anywho. Uh, so yeah, I basically just ended with that. And then um, the snake, Nagiri. Nagini? Nagini. Nigeria. Sure. Oh, no. The snake eats the muggle studies teacher, and that's the end of that. You sound very upbeat about the death of an innocent muggle studies teacher. Well, I don't remember her. I don't know. Wait, is, she, is she a famous character? No. no. It's not no. supposed to be a huge thing where it's like, oh my god, they killed her. No. Okay. no, no. I, I mean, it's the death of a human, a... so. Yeah. Yeah. One more soul has passed away. You're supposed yeah. to, you know, feel In something, this but. Tragic war, you know. <laughs> Well, considering this war has been going on for 15 minutes for me. So, wait, so, but you, you've you summarized what it is, but what's your review so far? Yeah. Well, my review so far is I'm very confused what's going on in terms of, like, it seems to be the same old, same old stakes. Uh-huh. Where, like, Voldemort's trying to kill Harry Potter, and he's very upset. And I am sure, I, I don't know who this feels like, oh, my God, they're closing in on him, or if Voldemort is just very upset as he usually is i think you should know for context that at this point in the story voldemort is in the lead like he's winning yeah it felt like that and i mean you can tell something's up with snape i think he has a secret all right this has been the last (laughs) (laughs) dylan's covered under the stairs oh yeah are you gonna keep reading it well i get yes i will keep reading it it is um an interesting like cold open i guess for the book mm-hmm. where it does set up the world and the stakes and the fact that there is something happening to harry potter this year him turning 17 there's a spell being broken which mm-hmm. i guess that also helps explain the previous six books why it seems that even though he was in incredible danger the whole time he never got hurt mm. So, mm. except the scar on his head well thank you dylan this has been dylan's cupboard under the stairs all right well we'll check in uh next week maybe <laughs> and maybe give us a little bit more in chapter two. Maybe J.K. Rowling should give me a little bit more in chapter two. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, I have no shame to report this week. Does anybody have any shame? 
No, I don't have any shame. I feel like we should maybe pull yeah. up the curtain a little bit. Yeah, we really should. Andrew and me and Dylan are about to go to Maine for the 4th of July. And woo. so, woo, Toby, woo. you will be there in spirit. I haunt you guys wherever you go. <laughs> because we're doing that, we had to record an episode ahead of time, which means that we recorded one episode yesterday and one today. So I read Kitchen Confidential in a day. And mm-hmm. that's it would be really bad if I had shame in 24 hours. Did you have... No reservations about reading it oh. so quickly. Uh. <laughs> we did drive by. Wait, wait, um, wait, wait. wait. Yep. Did you finish it all or are there still some parts unknown? Oh, my God. Uh, oh, no, not just the first time. Okay. I, I, okay. <laughs> all right. Well, there's no shame. Good job, everyone. Thank for you. For 24 hours without buying a new book. Hmm. But we have to check in on the foreign report well here i am in the middle of the ocean coming at you live for the foreign report we have but one country in the entire world that's been added since our last foreign report however that one country was on one of our podcasters lists so to reveal this country let's say you wake up you look outside the window you see a lot of green you pour yourself a morning guinness Greenland. Famous Greenland Guinness. Yep, famous Greenland Guinness. You walk out to your favorite Dublin breakfast spot. I think it's very specific about where we're headed right now. Very clearly Ireland. And Ireland was on our very own lead host's Bailey's list. So, Bailey, congratulations. You have added a pick to your roster. Congratulations. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I have a question for you guys before we get started on today's reviews. Speaking of reading a book in 24 hours... Um, I'm wondering, like, if you have a process or what that process is to reading a book. Like, when you get a book and you pick it off off the shelf, like, what's the first thing that you read? Okay, let me describe what I <laughs> do, you, and you tell me if I'm super weird. Uh, I'm speaking ahead of time. I'm going to make a bet and say yes. It's weird. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, first thing I do, I pick up the book. Often, I smell the book. Yep. Weird. Okay. Yep. We're already veering. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, weird. Especially this one's an old book, so I definitely get got a good good sniff. Then you lick the book. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then I I appraise the cover. I look at it. I read everything that's on the cover, even if it's like a little. You know, this one says unique dot dot mesmerizing. I got to read all that. Oh, I never read those. Okay, then I flip to the back. I have to read everything that's on the back. Uh huh. Then I flip through. I have to read the introduction. And the acknowledgments in the back. What? Before you start the book? Before I start. The acknowledgments. No, the acknowledgments can spoil things, Bailey. That's bad. Yeah, they totally can. I know. Can. It is a risk. And then in my mind, it is not finished until then I reread the back and the front a second time. Hmm. Do you guys think I am a little, like, maybe I am a little compulsive? I don't know. Yes. Yes. I thought this question was going to lead to, like... In the process of this podcast, knowing you have to read a book relatively quickly, do you plan out how many pages you need to read during the day? Mm. I had no idea it was going to be like process of smelling, tasting. Because <laughs> I started reading it and like I, I was like, okay, well, I got to first read all this stuff. And in the back of this one, it says it has like interviews and insights and afterwards. I was like, got to read that first. And Wait, so what? That was like 50 pages before I even started reading. Oh, boy. Really, you really, sometimes there are things in the back of the book you do not need to read. Like questions yeah. for, for book groups? Don't read those. Yeah. What? I, yeah. But I do read them. I just have to finish the book first. The one thing I've gotten better about not reading is in the end when they have like, and here's the chapter of the next book. Oh, yeah. You, you know don't want to read mean? that one either. 
yeah, that that I've started to not do that. But, uh, you know, I don't feel like the book is done until I do that. I think I might have a problem. I'm pretty much 100% the opposite. Like, I don't read forwards. I don't read afterwards, usually. Like, if I really like a book, I will go back and read the foreword after I've read the book. And it's usually like, I'll read, I'll finish a book that I really loved and be like, wow, I wish I had more information on this author or mm-hmm. some more thoughts to think about this book. And then, then that's when the foreword is good. But I've never, it's always been like, oh, why is this like, it's such a drag. It's just delaying me from starting the book. I, I more often than not, probably slightly more than Toby, go back and end up reading the foreword beforehand or read it ahead of time. I'd say 75 to 90% of the time I read that foreword, whether it's before or after I finish the text, which is up. But yeah. Okay, guys, I think I'm learning in general. I need to like relax and live in the moment. And I think maybe I should talk to my therapist about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't want to diagnose you, but it seems like you're adding control to situations that don't need control. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? You're talking to the woman who started a podcast to help her deal with her compulsive buying of books. (laughs) Well, listeners, let me know. I, I know that I'm weird, but let me know if you're weird, too. Maybe you have a different way of reading. Maybe you also lick them. (laughs) Andrew, which book did you read this week? I read Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Pew, pew, pew. Pew, pew. Toby, you read this one too, right? I have read this book. Yeah, who among you has read it? I have. I have. Dylan? I'm part of it. Why have I read part of it? Oh my okay. God, Dylan, have you finished anything in your life? <laughs> I love you. This is why I'm not on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> For those listeners who haven't read it, what is it about, Andrew? Station 11 is about a pandemic that sweeps the world, uh, leaving most of the population dead um, and only a few survivors without electricity or any of the modern conveniences. It centers about half the time on the world post that pandemic and about half the time on the world pre that pandemic, focusing mainly on a character named Arthur Leander, who is a very famous actor who has passed his prime and is, this is not a spoiler, one of the last people to die of natural causes before the world-shattering pandemic. I recall there's acting involved. Is that part of it? Shakespeare? The uh, Uh main post-apocalyptic section focuses on a traveling symphony, is what they call themselves, but they perform Shakespeare and uh, play music, specifically in the greater Midwest area. The main character of that section is named Kirsten, um, and this is also, again, not a spoiler, but she's connected to the character of Arthur, who um, dies in the very short first chapter of the book. So as I said, when I had this book drawn for me, I don't want to officially classify it as a DNF in that I never, I never completely gave up on finishing this book, but I had picked it up a few years ago for reference for how long ago I was reading it. uh, The bookmark I had in the time was a ticket stub for a flight I took in 2016, August, 2016. So it had been the better part of three years since I've had picked this book up, but I never like fully gave up on it. I always intended to go back and finish it, but I just never got around to it. So I'm actually really glad that the podcast had me pick it back up because overall I'm really positive on this book. I think it, um, some of its strengths is that she creates this like, great vision of a post-apocalyptic world with like really strong descriptions of how life would change once specifically we lost electricity and all of the modern conveniences. Kind of connecting back to Exit West from a few weeks ago, it also sort of does the opposite, whereas Exit West expands the world to where anybody can go anywhere. This explores how the world would shrink if you could no longer communicate with people. And I thought her descriptions of of that were particularly strong. There 
is a greater narrative going forward that like has some really high life or death stakes and you end up getting really invested in the characters then. I thought that the book moved towards a great climax and had a really strong ending. It had one of my favorite last lines of a book that I'd read in a very long time. Obviously, I'm not going to say what it is, but um, I thought it was really strong and really like did a good job of underlining the world of the book would continue in a really strong and really beautiful way. Awesome. You're making me want to pick the book up and read that last line again. I don't remember it. You should. Part of the the fun of that was getting to the end of the book and reading everything and then having that be the last line. So I don't know how, like, just lifting the line (laughs) up, how effective that would be. But maybe it would be worth a check. Um, And so before I move on to, like, a couple of my small complaints about the book, I want to read one section from early in the book, which is a great description of what life would be after the world ended. So this is on page 31. And it's from a, the beginning of chapter six, which is just titled An Incomplete List. And here it is. No more diving into pools of chlorinated water lit green from below. No more ball games played out under floodlights. No more porch lights with moths fluttering on summer nights. No more trains running under the surface of cities on the dazzling power of the electric third rail. No more cities. No more films, except rarely, except when the generator drowning out half the dialogue, and only then for the first little while until the fuel for the generators ran out, because automobile gas goes stale after two or three years. So that's one of the ways she sets you in this world, where you're like forced to reckon with what you would lose in that situation. I found myself being very grateful for having running water after this, <laughs> like uh, as I was like refilling my water bottle. The, the book takes place not... Um, it's like different than other post post apocalyptic books in my memory because it doesn't take place right after the plague or whatever. It takes place like a considerable time after. It right? bounces around a lot in time. The main like action of the book takes place twenty years after the apocalypse. They call it year twenty, like counting forward from when yeah. it happened. Mm-hmm. But there's some sections that take place in year fifteen. Uh, there's large section later in the book which deals with sort of the immediate aftermath. But it bounces around quite a bit. There are even some sections that take place like almost thirty years before it happens at all. I'm noticing a theme in books that I like recently where they are able to sort of flex you through time and like navigate in a cool weavy way. Um, so I'm going to go into a couple of my negatives. Emily St. John Mandel, if you're listening, I really like this book. I'm sorry, but I do have a couple of notes. <laughs> couple, couple of orcs. I have a couple of orcs. <laughs> One of my sort of quibbles is that it sets up the narrative as being mostly rooted in this post-pandemic world. Like the first few chapters lead up to this world and then you think, okay, now I'm in the story and now I'm in the story that's going to take me to the end of the book. This like really exciting, weird world where humans have adapted to life without electricity, where they are in danger. But then it sort of goes away from that and goes back to the past or goes to a different section or a different character who you're not thinking of. And ultimately, by the end of the book, I was really glad for that because I thought it was a great character study of specifically the Arthur character and the Kirsten character. But The way it is sort of couched is you get this intro, you think you're in this apocalyptic thriller, and then about 100 pages into there, you sort of pop out. Takes away the momentum. It takes away the momentum. And sort of, I think if it had been more of a direct, every other chapter was sort of switching, I would have been rooted in it, because that's sort of what it becomes in the second half of the book. But I did notice that where I stopped was right where it had popped back out out of the post-apocalyptic thing. And I think that that was, yeah. that was sort of the reason for it. I was going to ask what was different about reading it this time than last time. Well, but before you answer that, yeah. I would say I agree 100%. I, that's, that was, I remember that being my biggest 
issue with the book is I was so hooked and then it slows way down mm. just yeah. for that that first switch. It's like, whoa. Yeah, and it really is just that first switch because after she gets past that, like thought it was really expertly woven and really compelling. Like you would get bursts of information about the sort of main narrative in the post-apocalyptic world. Then you'd get more information about a character you cared about that you knew something about. And so that mm-hmm. kind of worked. Um, but that first thing, yeah, it really did take me out. And it was where I ended up stopping the first time. So I think that's probably what was up. <laughs> well, was the beginning of the book equally enjoyable this time or was it just this is just different in that you had to finish it for the podcast would you say i had the same experience of reading it this time but the Mm -hmm. fact that i knew i had to finish for the podcast did let me get over that hump the only other like sort of criticism i would have of it is it relies just that little bit too much on coincidence I don't want to veer into spoilers, and there's probably no way to talk about why there's too much coincidence, in my opinion, without spoiling something. So I'll just say, like, if you saw this in a movie or you you saw this written down in a news story, you'd be like, huh, that just seems a little bit too convenient. (laughs) But it's minor. I really did like it. And overall, it was satisfying because you got to sort of feel like you got a complete story from the characters that you were invested in. So, yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say about the book. Would you recommend it to people? Yeah, I would. I I found myself actually specifically wanting to recommend it to Jillian um, because she's Mm. also in the world of theater. And in saying that I think Jillian would like it, I can think of probably 10 other people who I would like to recommend it to. So, yeah. Cool. So how many stars and are you going to keep it on your shelf? Well, I guess you are because you're going to give it to Jillian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I am going to keep it on my shelf. I feel very strongly that this is a three and a half star book, but I know that's not allowed. Oh, so what you going to give it? Uh-oh. As I said, there's so much in this book I really like. He's going to give it three stars. But because I feel bad about not finishing it the first time around, I'm giving it the extra half star and giving it four oh. stars. Ooh. Sympathy stars. It's not really sympathy. I could, it could go either way. <laughs> and like depending on the section of the book, it definitely felt like a four star book to me. It was just yeah. the things I talked about that I really had problems with. But... Yeah, overall, I'm very happy to give this four stars and to recommend it to other people and to keep it on my shelf. You know, that's crazy. I agree with you. Like, I think every single point that you made is exactly how I felt about this book. But I think I ended up giving it three stars. Exactly. It's I, a perfect three and a half star book. I, I looked back on my Goodreads and I gave it four stars. But I remember also finding it a bit slow. But I thought it was because, you know, good problems. I was reading it well on a vacation in Hawaii. And it was a bit too serious for that kind of like beach read. Mm-hmm. I think it may have been also suffered from a little bit of mismarketing. Mm. I think people at the time that I picked it up, it was definitely like post-apocalyptic excitement, right. blah, 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 blah. And so I did not really, I was not tuned in for what I was getting. Yeah. I wouldn't push it on someone saying it's a post-apocalyptic story. I would just prep them and be like, it's a really great book. Right. Yeah. That happens I totally in agree with post-apocalypse. That. You like Mad Max Fury Road? You'll love Station Eleven. <laughs> I, I do think if you did like Station Eleven, um, and Andrew, I would recommend it to you too. There's a book called California by Eden Lepucky, which I really liked. And I often equate them in my head, I think, because they came out around the same time. Toby's giving me a thumbs down. I liked that one, and it was also post-apocalyptic and dealt with relationships and that sort of thing. I would 100% agree with the, you saying that they are similar books. I did not really like California by Eden well, Lepucky. It was very hyped as well for me. Well, we'll just have to have a fight later. Yeah. Yeah, I will report back on the uh, Instagram feed about who wins the bare knuckle boxing fight between these two about this book. (laughs) Excellent. I mean, if I beat Bailey, I'm just going to take her plane ticket and go to Maine with Dylan. Uh, That was a great review, Andrew. I think it's um, this was the first uh, DNF that we returned to. And it's great to see that, you know, you could get a four star book out of that. For sure. Um, So, Toby, do you have any facts? Yes, I do. Excellent. 
Emily St. John Mandel. Uh, she's still alive. She was born in 1979. Uh, she was born and raised on Denman Island off the west coast of British Columbia, Canada. Um, she left school when she was 18 to study contemporary dance. And she lived for a while in Montreal uh, before relocating to New York City, where she lives today with her husband and daughter. That's funny. That mirrors the journey of one of the characters quite a bit. Well, and also, Toby, I genuinely that. did zero research on this, so this is all a surprise to me. <laughs> um, so she wrote an article um, using Goodreads' database of books, which we're all familiar with. For Please, this sponsor podcast. Us. Please sponsor us. Please sponsor us. So she used da- Goodreads' database. She found all the books that included the word girl in the title. And she did a lot of like analysis of the themes of these books and stuff like that. Gone girl. Girl on the, the train. The girl in cabin, cabin. Um, luckiest girl alive. Girl interrupted. Girl with a dragon tattoo. Those okay. are all, That's good. Those those are all are good, good examples. Ones? Yeah, good uh, one, guys. Right. Um, but one of her interesting facts that she discovered by combing through all these books is that the girl is, quote, significantly more likely to end up dead if the author of the book is a male. Oh. Ooh. It sounds like she had some interesting finds in there Uh, so the rest of this is from an interview she did with tor.com uh the interviewer asked her about um basically this is an interesting book that it takes place not immediately after the post uh, the apocalypse where a lot of these books tend to where like the horror and and kind of the walking dead kind of takes place in this world where it's all um as the interviewer says rape and terror um and she asked her why she chose to set her book you know further down the line than than right afterwards It was absolutely a conscious choice on my part. I'm drawn to post-apocalyptic fiction, but I had no interest in writing a horror novel, which is why most of the post-apocalyptic action of the book is set 20 years after the apocalypse. My assumption is that in the immediate aftermath of a complete societal collapse, it probably would all be rape and mayhem. But probably not forever, because constant mayhem isn't a particularly sustainable way of life, and because I harbor a possibly naive but stubborn notion that the overwhelming majority of people on Earth really just want to live peacefully and raise their kids and go about their business with a minimum of fear and insecurity. So I think that the initial spasms of violence would most likely eventually subside, and people would start figuring out ways to live again. Hmm. What, Andrew, would you say is echoed in her book? For sure, for sure. That is definitely echoed in the way she decides to tell this story. Um, the interviewer at Tor.com asks her what some of her favorite post-apocalyptic... What's that word? It's hard. Yeah, it's uh, what, uh, very difficult. The, <laughs> the interviewer asks her what are a few of her favorite post-apocalyptic novels? Azerbaijan. <laughs> St. John Mandel says, I really liked A Canticle for Leibowitz. Have you guys read that one? It's a weird one. It's good, but it's very weird. Also, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, Colson Whitehead's Zone one and peter heller's the dog stars a major factor in my decision to go with Knopf was that my editor there also edited the dog stars have you guys read any of those no but they sound good the road yeah. is good yeah. i've seen the movie but i have not i have read not it. seen the movie vigo mortensen yeah baby i don't know why i said that wow Bebe. keep that in the podcast for sure that's for, mo- that's for our mom who has a big crush on him <laughs> hey i have a big crush on him come on man <laughs> Uh, I've also read Zone 1 by Colson Whitehead, and that one's good. If you like the idea of all these ones we've been talking about, California, mm-hmm. Station 11, go ahead and do Zone 1. It's very much in the same, with a with actually a lot more action because it's like killing zombies. Uh, that's all I have, guys. Um, she seems like a lovely person, and I am very happy for her success. As Bailey mentioned earlier, by making a mistake, this is her fourth book, um, and she's kind of been getting more and more successful um, with each one, so I think people are, are eagerly awaiting her next book. Are the other ones post-apocalyptic as well, do you know? Um, No, I think they are more on the literary fiction type of thing, but she did mention that she always 
sets out to re- to write pure literary fiction, mm-hmm. and then these genre elements keep creeping in, which I think these days are very successful. So it's like, oh, what a what a problem. Oh no, I accidentally wrote a genre book. Oh uh, no, what a bummer. It's really oh, good. Oh no, this girl just wound up in the title. I guess it'll be a bestseller now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This week, I read a book that is not post-apocalyptic at all. It's called Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain. Um, The subtitle is Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly, but I listened a little bit to the Audible book, and he said culinary. You know, Andrew, you worked in a restaurant. Is it culinary or culinary? I mean, I always said culinary, but I worked in a kind of grubby restaurant, so who knows? Well, we're not Anthony Bourdain, so he must know better than us. So It's Anthony Bourdain. (laughs) Get out. You know... I had a summary prepared, but I actually was re when I finished the book, I went to the back of the book and I reread it and I thought this is the perfect summary. So I'm going to read it. It's one sentence. A deliciously funny, delectably shocking banquet of wild but true tales of life in the culinary trade from chef Anthony Bourdain laying out his more than a quarter century of drugs, sex and haute cuisine. So, so this is a book that's it's a memoir and it's told, you know, there's the conceit where it's like appetizer, first course, second course, dessert, etc. Mm-hmm. And it's just sections from his life, starting with his first memory of becoming a foodie. Like when he was a kid, he had an oyster while traveling abroad in France, and that just changed his life. Cross one of my facts off from my research. Not your fault. It's that's just, the first no, 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 no. That's not your fault at all. It's just like it's like one of the big things that pops up all the time if you search for him really? online. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that's the first chapter, and then it goes all the way to him becoming a chef, sort of a famous chef, or at least a successful chef at Lazal in uh, New York, um, which Dylan and I ate there once. I don't know if you remember. Ooh. Yeah, we did. Yeah. You know what? The food wasn't that great. And the white stuff was surely. <laughs> but I think that was after Anthony Bourdain had moved on, so who knows. Um, obviously, Anthony Bourdain since moved on to have a completely different career. He was no longer toiling, you know, behind the hot oven. He became a celebrity chef and, uh, as you know, toured the world with his shows um, and tragically um, died by suicide recently. So it was bittersweet to read the book and sort of like fall in love with his worldview and his tone and I don't know, gone too soon. I haven't read any of his books, but I was a huge fan of his travel shows. Mm-hmm. Really, I don't know, as a person who likes to travel myself, they were, I always got really fired up, you know, and he, yeah, his philosophy is really interesting. Seems like a really cool guy. And it reads a lot like that. It's very colloquial and it's mm-hmm. very Anthony Bourdain. Because I had to read this in 24 hours and I had a previous engagement, <laughs> Pokemon Go, I had to listen to the beginning of it instead of reading it. So I was listening to it on Audible, and of course, Anthony Bourdain narrated it. And so it was really kind of nice to hear his voice. Um, oh. I know, it was kind of sad. He was such a strong personality, that, and it's great to hear his words in his voice because he gives different um, characters voices and he adds more humor to it. So again, if you're interested in audiobooks, this might be a good one to listen to. So on the last episode, Toby, you were talking about how when you pick up a five-star book, you know it's a five-star book. Mm-hmm. That's how I felt reading this book. As really? soon as I started reading, I was like, oh, this is what a five-star book feels like. Nice. But it was just like, oh, I love being in this world, and I want to stay in it, and I don't almost want the book to end. And I mean, I I read it in 24 hours, but it was not difficult to do that, like very easy. So things that made it a five-star book for me, he's very funny, very snarky, tongue-in-cheek, etc. You know that based on seeing him on TV. Um, and it's, you know, very crass, but but it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
you don't necessarily want to be friends with him because he talks about a lot of crazy stuff that he's up to, crazy antics, a lot of like toxic masculine behavior, a lot of like sex drugs and bleeding all over each other in the kitchen. That's like part of the games that they like to play. But you definitely want to, you definitely would want to meet him and have a dinner with him. Mm -hmm. He has excellent character descriptions. So I'll just give you an example of that. I'll give you a little scene description and then a little character description just to get a sense. It's on page 20, and it's talking about um, the first restaurant where he worked in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Crossing the fact off the list. <laughs> All right. The dreadnought was, well, you've eaten there or someplace like it. A big old ramshackle driftwood pile built out over the water on ancient wooden pylons. In bad weather, the waves would roll under the dining room floor and thud loudly against the seawall. Gray wood shingles, bay windows, and inside the classic old New England slash rusty scupper slash I matey slash Captain What's decor. You can picture. You're right there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, So that's the scene description. And then a few paragraphs later, here's some character description. These are the cooks of the dreadnought. There was Bobby, the chef, a well-toasted late 30-ish ex-hippie who, like a lot of people in P-Town, had come for vacation years back in state. He lived there year-round, chefing in the summer, doing roofing and carpentry and house-sitting during the off-season. There was Lydia, a half-mad, matronly Portuguese divorcee with a teenage daughter. Lydia made the clam chowder for which we were somewhat famous, and during service dished out the vegetable and side dishes. She drank a lot. He, his tone is so to the point, and... It gives you just such an excellent picture of who these people are. Yeah, that was great. You're transported into this world, and you're excited to read about his crazy, crazy life. For me, I do not like cooking. I'm not necessarily a footy. Footy. I'm not necessarily. <laughs> you can you, you can try to deny it, but we all know you're a footy. <laughs> I'm not necessarily a foodie, but I was completely transfixed and engaged by this world. And I would be curious, too, for you to read it, Andrew, from being... Um, a line cook, how much of it is accurate? I'm sure there's some things that are different because he was working in probably a higher echelon of food, though I mean, we were probably doing a similar amount of things, but with fewer people. So I bet there are some similarities. But the one where you were there for the longest time, the kitchen was literally right in front of the people, the um, customers, so you couldn't get up to too many crazy antics. I mean, (laughs) I did once punch a piece of catfish because the cook did it wrong too many times and exploded all over his station. It's the most mad I've ever been, and I can't explain why I did it to this day. Because it was just like a blind rage thing and so out of character that I think about it all the time as like, oh gosh, I'm capable of such evil. (laughs) Wow. I never would have expected to hear a story like that from you, Andrew. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. Andrew, before I move on, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience in the kitchen? Well, I mean, I don't want to equate my experience too much with uh, Anthony Bourdain's. Obviously, he did a lot more and a lot fancier. I was a cook uh, in a couple of different kitchens, but my primary one was at Pies and Thighs in Williamsburg, New York, if anyone's been there. Is this chicken pot pies and chicken thighs? It is fried chicken and southern comfort food. Um, mm. the, the pies are the dessert. Okay. Though we did sometimes do a special in uh, of chicken pot pie. Andrew, do you remember that time you brought home a whole thing of macaroni and cheese when you and I were roommates, and I was really excited to eat it, and then you ate it all, and then I got really sad? <laughs> yeah, you got really mad at me, actually. I wouldn't say sad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm imagining one of these, like, catering tins that's, like, the size no, it of, wasn't. Like, it was several a, it, binders. It, it's like a it tub. was a quart. It was a quart tub. <laughs> oh, that's not that bad. That's, that's, that's not that much food. <laughs> no, I presented it to Bailey as something she could have. 
And I was thinking about it all day, and then I came back from teaching, and it was gone. That's the kind of wild lifestyle that uh, Anthony Bourdain engenders <laughs> in uh, in his followers. You can't trust chefs. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so you were a line cook. I was a line cook and then I was an expediter, which, um, in our restaurant was slightly different than what the traditional expediter does. Cause they were also like sort of the lead cook of the line. The expediter traditionally just sort of runs the pass, but in this situation we were cooking and running the pass. I learned what the pass is from this book. So yep. that's a word I learned. So when you, when you punch that guy's catfish where you're like, expedite this, bam. <laughs> no, I did it. It was one of those things like the moment after you do it, you're like, What? Why, yeah, why yeah. did I do that? I don't really want to harp on this, but the, the order I called do. for no tartar sauce on the catfish, and he'd done like three orders of it and put catfish, put tartar sauce on the catfish, and so I just slapped it, like, well, I think I punched it, punched down on the fish, and it like went all over a station. I'm so sorry, Will, wherever you are in the world, if this podcast are finds you, you. Yeah, did you guys end up being cool? Or no, Will and I were happened? close. Like Will and I were, Will and I were tight. <laughs> Oh, okay. That's well, a little bit better. Anthony then. Bourdain in one scene describes um, this guy in the kitchen kept like hitting him on the butt and he got frustrated and he took a kitchen like a meat fork and stabbed it into his hand. And he what? Used, and they were like, and everybody laughed and respected me. And meanwhile, he was on the ground rolling around with these giant holes in his hand. I was like, this is not funny. That's insane. I, I'm fascinated now. After reading this book, I have a lot more questions for you. But one thing also that I loved about it, one, the descriptions were wonderful, but when they were talking about things that I do not find appetizing, they were so evocative that I was like, gross. Is this seafood, perhaps? Seafood, yes. So, listeners of the podcast, you might have figured out that Andrew and I grew up in Maine, specifically an island in Maine, and for whatever reason, neither of us like seafood. And I'm actively, like, disgusted by seafood. It makes me, like, gag a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, I've been trying to get better about it. I can eat like most shellfish now, but it's still, yeah, I can't explain it. I I want to enjoy it because it's something that I feel like I should, but I just can't. That's yeah. all right. More seafood for me and Dylan. But yeah, so the those descriptions, there was no problem. The rest of it, when he's talking about French food, um, it, it was like, oh yeah, yum. I want to eat that. <laughs> there were parts of it, of the book that were already published in The New Yorker and I think my favorite chapter from the book was one of those that was art published as a standalone article. Um, and the chapter is called From Our Kitchen to Your Table. And it's essentially tips um, like how to eat at a restaurant, like from people in the know. Ooh. So this is an example. While we're on brunch, how about hollandaise sauce? Not for me. Bacteria <laughs> love hollandaise. And hollandaise, that delicate emulsion of egg yolks and clarified butter, must be held at a temperature not too hot nor too cold, lest it break when spooned over your poached eggs. Unfortunately, this lukewarm holding temperature is also the favorite environment for bacteria to copulate and reproduce in. Nobody I know has ever made hollandaise to order. Most likely the stuff on your eggs was made hours ago and held on station. Equally disturbing is the likelihood that the butter used in the hollandaise is melted table butter, heated, clarified, and strained to get out all the breadcrumbs and cigarette butts. Butter is expensive, you know. No. Yeah. I love hollandaise sauce. <laughs> it, it's stuff like that, like don't eat seafood on a Monday, don't do xyz because it's not good for you toby's like mind is blown right now <laughs> that's a, that's a real blow because i love eggs benedict i love hollandaise sauce i'm never gonna make it at home it's a huge pain yeah. to make so what am i just never gonna have egg <laughs> i had the same reaction because i also love hollandaise sauce like yeah. i can i'm fine not ordering fish on a monday hollandaise <laughs> sauce i was like oh no but in his introduction he anthony bourdain talks about how the best things in life come with a little bit of a risk mm. Uh, you know, and if you really love it, sometimes you just got to risk being sick for a day. 
Yeah. I'm going to keep eating Eggs Benedict. (laughs) This was a five star for me. The only orc, the only negative I would say, (laughs) and I think this came specifically from me reading it, sort of binging it, is that around, I would say, like the third act, it started to drag a bit, started to get a bit repetitive. And I got a little bit sick of like the tough guy attitude, the swearing, the crudeness, the sexual jokes, etc. And I think it was just a lot of it in a row. But if I had spaced it out better, I think I would have would have gone down easier. I'm doing a lot of food puns. Do you like that? Take it with a grain of salt. Gone down easier. Gone down easier. Hollandaise sauce. Yeah. (laughs) The great pun of hollandaise sauce. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. It's a great wait, wait. it's a great hollandaise read. Holiday uh, read? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, All right. All right. So yeah. Anthony Michael Bourdain. Uh, was born in uh, in June 1956 and uh, passed away in uh, June 2018. So I've got a couple fun facts. You covered a lot of his like bio stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know that he was a mystery novelist before he was a successful author in this capacity? That is part of the book, yes. Okay. <laughs> so his Kitchen Confidential quintet um, are um, very popular. I didn't um, know that there was more than one. Yeah, it's uh, Kitchen Confidential, A Cook's Tour, The Nasty Bits, No Reservation, and Medium Raw. Ah. He also wrote a graphic novel called Get Jiro, which all of us have read and not enjoyed. Yeah, sorry. You can't win them all. Um, it's not great, guys. Don't yeah. pick it up. So before he was even like a famous at all or famous in any capacity, uh, Tony was a mystery novelist. He published his first novel in 1995. It was called Bone in the Throat, and it was about murderous chefs. The reviews were not great. Bourdain is famously opinionated about lots of things, especially about music, um, but he fired people when he was a chef um, to play or be seen enjoying Billy Joel songs. He is very particular, and you can see that in the book, and it made me feel a little bad, especially there's a section about how to be a cook, and it's like, if you if you don't use garlic fresh and pressed with a knife, like you, you don't deserve to be a human. I use garlic from a jar. I know, I know. He's kind of known on his shows as a person who will, like, eat anything. Mm-hmm. He's not, like, a food challenge person, but it's if he's traveling to a certain far-flung locale and they have a crazy dish, uh, he will eat it and kind of put it on TV. Um, so he was asked once what the most disgusting thing he ever ate was, and he said a McDonald's chicken McNugget. Oh, come he on. He even said that um, uh, he famously ate warthog rectum on one of his trips uh-huh. and he said given a choice between reliving the warthog experience and eating a chicken mcnugget i'm surely eating the mcnugget but at least i knew what the warthog was whereas with the mcnugget i think that's still an open question scientists are still wondering i think that that's a little bit of his bravado yeah um, it could yeah. be could be and then uh, the last thing i found that i wish i had more evidence on there's a bit of a feud between between him and guy fieri mm-hmm. he famously said that guy fieri was like something that had been created by the simpsons mm. Um, just kind of a guy who felt like he needed to snipe at um, at the what he saw as like the fake side of, of celebrity chef culture. Well, speaking of uh, forwards and afterwards, in this book, he talks a lot of smack about Emeril, who <laughs> calls him something like a hobbit of a person or something. Um, but then in the afterward, he's like, I gotta... I got to take that back. Emerald's a good guy. I met him and he's a good chef. So yeah, he seems like a nice guy. Yeah. I think I can see taking pot shots at Guy Fieri. Yeah. Who seems to be encouraging Americans to eat like as much cheese as possible. Yeah. But Emerald seemed like a good cook. Well, that's all I got. All right. Great. Yeah. Um, Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain. Five stars. Five stars. I'm excited. I'm going to read this book now. For yeah, sure. This I mean, makes sure. me excited to read this for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Um, Andrew, what kind of game you got? All right. So the name of this week's game is 
is Cook, Play, Boom. Ooh. <laughs> Cook, Play, Boom. The way this game is going to work is I have a list of restaurants that Anthony Bourdain visited on his TV show, No Reservations. I have a mm-hmm. list of minor Shakespeare characters because yeah. station in Station Eleven, the traveling troupe performs exclusively Shakespeare. And I have a list of Harry Potter spells to honor Dylan starting this Ooh. book. I'm going to give each of you in turn one of each and you will need to guess what each of them are. You will get okay. a point for each correct guess, and you will get five points if you get all three right and hit a trifecta. Sure. Okay, so the way the points are gonna work in this game is we have a limited number of options, so we're gonna do three rounds each. So Bailey will go three times and Toby will go three times, and whoever has the most points at the end of it will be the winner. Is that okay with y'all? Heck yeah. Heck yes. Toby, uh, you won last time, so would you like to pick who goes first? Uh, yes, I'll let Bailey go first. All right, let's go. That was a mistake. All right. <laughs> Turgio, Casca, Domelis. I believe that's all one long Harry Potter spell. Okay. I think Turgio is a spell. I think Casca is a restaurant. And I think Domelis is the last one. Character. Shakespeare character. Bailey, you get one point. Turgio oh. is a spell. But Casca is a character from Julius Caesar. And Domelis is a mm. restaurant. Next. Encanto, Fang, Portus. Okay, I think you're trying to trick me. I think Portus is the Harry. Wait, no. This is harder than. Don't I overthink it would be. this. Don't yeah. overthink this, Toby. Okay, Portus is a Harry Potter spell. Encanto uh, is the Shakespeare, and Fang is the restaurant. I think Encanto is Harry Potter. No, nope. Toby, you have one point. Ooh. Encanto is indeed not from Harry Potter. Um, okay. So you were correct in Portus. Portus is the spell that creates a port key in, a port in key. Harry Potter. Yeah. Right. Um, Fang is a character from Henry IV Part Two, And Encanto oh. is a restaurant that Anthony Bourdain visited on no reservations. All right, Bailey, mm-hmm. your turn. Okay. Lupa, Bassett, Episky. All right. I think Lupa and I think of a wolf. I think Bassett, I think of a hound. Episky, I think of writing a letter. Um, <laughs> what, <laughs> what does that make your answer? <laughs> so, Episky is uh, 100% a um, Shakespeare character, and um, Lupa is a restaurant, and the other one is the other thing. I know Episky is wrong. Episky is for sure a Harry Potter spell. Episky is 100% Shakespeare, Lupa is a restaurant, and Bassett, Bassett is not a Harry Potter thing, but yeah. That's what I say. That's what I'm saying. That's what you say? Okay, well, you get one point again because Lupa <laughs> is a restaurant, but Bassett is certainly not a Harry Potter spell. Yeah. <laughs> Pisky is a way, I believe, to fix your nose. Luna Lovegood does it to Harry Potter at one point. All right, Toby, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Amiens, Quimet, Ferraverto. Quimet, Ferraverto. Okay. okay, I am lost on this one. Okay, uh, I'm going to say Quimet is a Harry Potter spell. Uh, Amiens is a restaurant and Ferraverto is the Shakespeare character. That is completely incorrect. <laughs> oh, no. um, Quimet was a restaurant. Amiens was a character from As You Like It. And Ferraverto is the spell that turns animals to water goblets. <laughs> All right, Bailey, your turn. Abhorson. Ferula. Marea. I think Marea is... Um... The restaurant, I think Horson is Harry. No, is um the other one Shakespeare. Shakespeare, 
and what was the first one? That uh, one. Ferula. That one's Harry Potter. Congratulations, Bailey. You just hit the trifecta. Yeah. You got five points. Ooh. What that means is it's actually impossible for Toby to win because he only has one round left. So congratulations, only Bailey. I hadn't allowed her to go first. <laughs> there <laughs> you go. Only Good if only. So now's the time in the podcast where we get a book chosen at random from our shelf. Dylan, hit us up with The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. Uh, so, Andrew, you got number 88, The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle by Haruki Murakami. Oh. Ooh, this is one of my favorite books of all time. This is really weird. This, this is the other book on my list that is a DNF. Or not a DNF, Ooh. but like one that I intended to go back to. I've read half of this book. Did you dislike it? Is that why you put it down? You know, I don't, no spoilers, but uh, uh, I got to the point where he was in the well, and I was like, okay, I'll come back to this tomorrow. And then I never came back to it. <laughs> Years later. Yeah. There's something witchy going on here that the, the two DNFs have come up in a row, but. Yeah. I'm very excited, I'm excited. to read this. Yeah. And Bailey, you have number 128. White Teeth by Zadie Smith. Oh, oh another cool. fantastic book. You know what's crazy? This is a DNF for me. Wow. What? Not like, really? Not not in at all a malicious way. This was similar, way. similar to Station Eleven. I brought it with me on like a tropical vacation. And there's a picture of me on Facebook with the book open over my head because I'd fallen asleep <laughs> just because it was it was not a, a beach read. Yeah. So I think I only read the first chapter. I'm excited. This wow. is a big one. You guys have both have books that I really love. I oh, love cool. White Teeth. I love Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Excellent. You guys are hopefully in for some good experiences. All right. Well, actually, um, in two weeks, our next episode is a very special guest episode. We have Camille Knox and Charlie Sanders of the Hashtag so LA podcast here to talk about Freedom by Jonathan Franzen. Two weeks after that, we will have my review of White Teeth by Zadie Smith and Toby's review of Willful Creatures by Amy Bender and then Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Nice. Yeah? Good. Yeah. All right, let me get my- Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the To Read List podcast. We're on Facebook and Instagram at To Read List podcast and on Twitter at To Read List pod. Uh, and if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and rate us five stars on iTunes or whatever a podcast app you use. And please go ahead and write a review if you feel so motivated because we read them and uh, we think about them when we're feeling sad. <laughs> also, uh, still one of the best ways to get new listeners is word of mouth. So if you enjoy this podcast, please find someone that you think would also enjoy it and tell them about it, whether that's your friend your weird uncle, your normal uncle, or whether that's just involves you going into a bookstore, opening a book and whispering the to read list into the pages so that when someone like Bailey smells the book, they are inspired <laughs> to look up our podcast. Anyone you can tell, we very much appreciate it. It's the best way for us to get new listeners. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. 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 Close enough. All right.